everyone. My name is Pow, also known as Pow Astrology on Twitter, and I'm here with Mo, and we are going to be talking about the Gemini Decans today. How's it going, Mo, and how are you dealing with the current astral weather? Um, in our pre-show chat, I was telling Pow that I'm kind of having a hard time. Uh, it's been... I would say with like the Jupiter ingress, it's been a series of mixed blessings thus far, but I don't think that it has to do with Jupiter so much as it does with Mercury being in shadow, finishing up its square, not square, sorry, trine with Saturn and uh, the square with Neptune. I really underestimated that one. <laughs> yeah, we were just talking about this. <laughs> so You've got this Mercury retrograde. It's in domicile, so we at least have that going for it. But, you know, the retrogrades last a few weeks. There's nothing atypical with that. But the fact that it's squaring Neptune for so long until, like, mid-July is not ideal. I think it's just going to just amplify the confusion, and it's going to elongate it because it's <laughs> that it's not – yeah, that square is not going to separate until, like, yeah. Something that I realized with the square, especially with Mercury in the last decade of uh, Gemini, we'll talk about this a bit later, but uh, the thing is, like, I find that with Mercury in domicile squaring Neptune, it's like, you could be as articulate as you want, you can communicate as clearly as you want, there's a mix of people being committed to misunderstanding you, uh, or that some people are just not capable of understanding you and so in trying to i guess create a narrative or extract a narrative from what you're trying to say they end up making you more confused about what you're doing and that's something i experienced a lot this week so uh and i'm just trying to deal with the uh aftermath of that yeah yep. yeah the, I feel you on Jupiter and Pisces. Like, I haven't had anything too major happen because, you know, it, has, it hasn't even been a week yet. It's been, a, yeah, today would be a week, right? Yeah, it's been since, a week, yeah. Yeah, it's been about a week since the ingress. I, I was already expecting that it was going to be a mixed bag because I was just looking to, like, 12 years back, like, what had happened. And I, I suggest everyone kind of do it, if you can. I mean, if you're old enough to look back at a previous, like, Jupiter um Pisces ingress but yeah that was 12 years ago for me and it really was like one of those like incredibly pivotal moments of my life in good and bad ways and so I've been wondering what it'll bring for me um it's been interesting really seeing some things come in full circle because I am old enough now where this is now Jupiter and Pisces I'm twice this is the second time I've gone through it as like an adult and it's um yeah, it's really interesting because in the last one, I had declined. Um, I had to decline graduate school because I had got in, so that was like that was like a great like Jupiter and Pisces thing. But then I found out like by toward the end of it, I was like, I can't, I can't afford this. Um, it was when Jupiter was in Aries where I did make the decision to like turn it down because like I just oh, like, couldn't I afford it. Yeah, which is my Jupiter return. <laughs> um, and um, yeah, and then but it's it's really funny because now. Like this past week, the one thing that happened in this ingress was I was leading this like one week writing training for union members. It was my first time ever leading like a writing training. And I, I it was like the most fun training I've ever led. I had I, I had so much joy teaching people how to write like 
um people had raving reviews about it and like I cried on the last day to them I was just like I, I my dream was to be a professor like I really always wanted to be a teacher and it's like really really this is not the way I ever would have imagined it to happen and like where I'm teaching not college students but you know yeah. working class people who you know some right. haven't gone to college no, that's interesting. I'm thinking of the last time Jupiter was in Pisces for me. I was just starting high school or like already in my first year of high school. What's ironic is that uh, I think during that period, uh, when it first went in, Jupiter also dipped back into Aquarius. And I remember the Jupiter and Aquarius period being really stressful, especially because it was conjunct Neptune. And transitioning into high school was pretty hard for me because it's like, okay, I was someone who was always really considered smart. I was really clever. I was good at school. And then the high school I went to was a really good high school and it was really hard. <laughs> and I felt like, you know, part of that, like, like late 2009, most of 2010 transition was me trying to like figure out how to adjust to the steep learning curve because it's like okay things used to be really easy for me and now they're not uh and i feel like that was not helped by jupiter being literally right on neptune half the time it's like okay we're in aquarius again and we're on neptune and then oh we're in pisces and it's okay but just kidding uranus is here too so <laughs> And I was going through all this weird health shit. And I think around that time, I would have been like wrapping up my Saturn opposition. Mm. So it's like, it was just, there was so much going on at the time. Whereas like, now I'm like pre-Saturn return, like, or Saturn return Eve, as I like to call it. And uh, I think I'm experiencing the same like, okay, <clears throat> I was skilled, I was smart, and I was hardworking, but now it's just like, that's gone. <laughs> so, but on the other hand, like, I noticed that uh, I really got more into social media. Like, I started my Tumblr page last time Jupiter was in Pisces, going into Aries, though. And I remember having a lot of fun with that. And that was like a good like creative outlet for me uh, I really think the second half of the Pisces Jupiter transit will be positive because I remember that like late Pisces Jupiter like Jupiter Aries period was when like my grades improved everything was awesome I was obsessed with being hardworking like you know I was less demoralized so I think I see the theme, but also because I was so young, it's just like, and I was also going through, you know, my Saturn opposition and Uranus was in my first house. Like, it's really hard to really pin it on Jupiter. Just yeah. I mean, I, I, I can't remember who it was on Astro IG who posted, like, yeah, the transits don't have to happen in a vacuum. Like, and it is really hard to just, like, see single it out as one. But I am curious, like, even, you know, we, we've been, we were just talking about, you know, th this transit being, like, a mixed bag of, like, blessings and, like, not. Like, even your experience of, like, going into high school and having to deal with that learning curve and suddenly being surrounded by a, a bunch of other kids who are just as smart, if not smarter than you. Like, I wonder if you're able to look back at it in retrospect as, like, being able to help you prep for the college experience. Because that's something that, like, most of people 
don't experience until you're 18 you're suddenly in a college environment around this, all the people who are also oh, yeah college was college was fun and I think it's funny that like I've come full circle it's like oh I was in high school trying to get into med school but it's like okay now I'm in a PhD program uh I'm here but then also like it's just like from a social media standpoint it's like okay to me, getting, having over a thousand followers on Tumblr was a big deal because, you know, uh, social media was still pretty, I don't want to say new, but it was just like not as, it was still like, you know, developing because, you know, 12, 10, 12 years ago, it was different. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And I'm just like, oh, now I'm on social media again, like, and I have way more followers now. So it's just like, that's cool uh and i think it's like reaffirming that it's just like okay uh me and social media development good idea because like this is a transit where uh jupiter's co-present with my 11th house ruler which is a malefic and the more challenging one so i'm just like i think whereas when i was younger it was like oh this is a big deal i just want to get more followers now i'm just like i don't care and i guess i'm with neptune being so close to my saturn i'm just like this is really i'm really disillusioned and mm -hmm. i feel like i need to go uh put my brand somewhere else mm -hmm. like twitter is just not doing it for me as much anymore mm -hmm. i need to blog and so what i actually did i think like literally the day of the ingress i sat down with my friend Anok, who is stars and sense on Twitter. And I was just listening. I was on her clubhouse yesterday. Did you oh join? Yeah. No, I missed it. I missed it. Oh, <laughs> I'm so upset. But like, I'm sure it was brilliant. Like, uh, I didn't and... get to sit through all of it. And I wish I did too. But it was very it was she was talking about like the derived seventh house and how you can really just yes. like, look at that. And if you really want to know about how you are in relationships and the kind of people you attract but anyway um, i mean i can that's a whole ass other topic <laughs> no like no speaking of like i think we should have her on to do davison's like because that would yes! be fun oh uh, but anyway like mm -hmm. yeah no she helped me like uh think about like how i want to design my website and you know she was like you know take your time with it like you don't want to rush it like i wanted to rush for jupiter going into pisces but then it's like it's going back literally like two days before new year's so it's like i don't need to rush this mm. i just need to take my time with it figure out what my brand is what its purpose is and you know who i want to attract to engage with it and i think i need to do the same for grad school honestly oh that's a really good realization. Yeah, I feel like we've been talking so much about Jupiter and Pisces, like that we're forgetting that we're literally entering eclipse season. And <laughs> I was just about to say it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, eclipse season. Um, I mean, you you just talking right now. I'm I'm kind of in the same boat. I think I mentioned it even in the last episode of like my readings are still on hold. I still feel like in no rush really to put it on hold. If, if I do feel any kind of rush, it's around just it's the money. <laughs> like honestly, like and just like kind of missing that. Um, 
so but yeah I kind of I'm kind of in the same place of just like well what's my brand like I really want to figure that out I really want to take the time I really want to take the time to really just think through my readings like I absolutely do want to blog more and I want to use my social media as a way to amplify that rather than like using the Twitter itself or like the Twitter <laughs> um my social media itself as um as the blogging right like I actually really do want to write more um write more about astrology and just write more in general but I yeah I'm interested to see what the eclipses will bring in my second and eighth house because financially I'm doing okay like I, I spent a lot of I dropped a lot of money on home decor over the past few months and I'm continuing <laughs> to drop a ton of money on home decor so it's worth it I do. it's worth it <laughs> I mean, so I have a fourth house stellium, so it's like I have to feed it. But <laughs> I also need a. I, I think I'm done. I think I'm done for now. I think. How about you? you? Know I, mean? the I am annoyed because this is a tenth and fourth house transit for me. Uh. So the. So these eclipses haven't been hitting me as hard as the last time they were in Sag and Gemini. Because what happened during that last one was, like, stuff to and about my parents. Like, that whole cycle was my parents experiencing job changes and them getting divorced. So that was that transit for me. Uh, this one is just like, okay, I've been feeling like my partner and I need to move. And we need to move badly. I am not enjoying my living situation right now. Uh, I also see that this uh, solar eclipse in particular is actually squaring my Saturn. Uh, pretty loose. I mean, it's still within three degrees, so ooh, not enjoying it, but like it's there. Uh, and so the last one, I feel like didn't really hit me as hard. It was more like, I think it was my partner's lunar return that uh, that month. I think it was like the end of October or something, but like he no not end of october sorry end of november my brain doesn't work um <laughs> uh, i don't know like he we wanted to move it's funny because like it's like we wanted to move but we couldn't um and there was actually a place that like opened itself up to us and like we got on the wait list for it that was that eclipse but for him like the moon rules his ninth house and i think he was like wrapping up his uh graduate school applications hmm. or something and so that was that transit for him uh this go around i am not sure i mean actually no thinking about it it would have been squaring his saturn which rules his fourth so like yeah it was like a uh we're gonna put off moving which would have been a great idea in retrospect because i'm too busy that was that and i don't know i am kind of worried because it's just like okay i am going home um. for a bit to escape the stress of whatever and so I don't know if this is going to be like a, okay, something happens to my parents or something happens at home or I feel like it's going to be something happens to my parents because like my sister's IC is ruled by Venus and her Venus is literally right there. Uh, mm. My dad has Jupiter right there. So I'm just like, okay, what is happening today? <laughs> yeah. Huh. 
that's where I'm at with that. So, but as for the uh, lunar eclipse coming up on the 26th, I think. Yes, the 26th. Like, the last one, even though it was close to my Jupiter, didn't really do anything. So I'm just like, I, I don't know. Like, the only thing I could think of is... I know the province is announcing like uh what's it called? They're announcing like reopening plans. So there might be a turning point with that because last year what happened around that eclipse, they were like, okay, here's the plan for going back to like twenty percent capacity or something. Hmm. So I think it's gonna be another one of those like okay, we're slowly gonna increase which will probably increase my productivity let's hope <laughs> yeah 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 I, it will be interesting to see what it brings globally like because like i can't oh my god i feel like this year's like such a blur but yeah the last um the last two eclipses right were like november december we were just coming like here in the united states like we we're just coming out of the election i think people are feeling really happy but there's still a lot of uncertainty <laughs> around um around the election results and or you know the uncertainty coming from the you know people supporting trump not from it was yeah. very clear who the winner was um but yeah. and then it was also right around that time when the vaccines were started like the announcements were coming up or like we've got a vaccine very like true. we're gonna start releasing it so that that's it'll be interesting to see a global perspective what will happen um i, I i'm the same way like these these eclipses it's been interesting because it has i mean look like it has brought up two house two two house second house eighth house stuff a little bit and it's been primarily around like my pay at my the organization i work with like we took a big hit this pandemic and the first time the eclipses hit last year like i had to take we, we were asked if we would take a pay um, if we delay our pay raises, um, this last November and December eclipses, um, we finally got the, we got the announcement that we will get the pay raises. So I'm interested in seeing what money stuff it brings up. But the more significant, like top of mind stuff that came up, it had to do with really relationships and dating, which is like really fucking oh, weird. Oh, that's wild. To me. I wonder yeah. if it's because like um, all that stuff trines your Mars. I guess so. so. I, 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 yeah, it's the only thing I could really think of because it's like, but yeah, it's, it's not second house, eighth house access. Yeah, I my my current partner now. Um, we went on our first date on that last eclipse. Oh wow! Like I think, uh, maybe it's just like a solidifying turning point in the development of that relationship. I think so. Uh, that that feels really important to me. Like my eclipse, the eclipses been uh i wouldn't say they interact as much with my jupiter and mercury and i feel like it's more in the square with my saturn that i've been feeling with these uh especially the <clears throat> last eclipse in uh sag mm. the last time we had that solar eclipse uh the graduate coordinator actually had to have a sit down with um everybody in the lab individually and uh my boss to talk about how things are going <laughs> and i feel like uh maybe that might be another thing that comes up <laughs> yeah it's just like i don't want to deal with that so yeah oh my god good luck Ugh. 
that's a clip season. Everyone. Yeah, it'll be an interesting summer. It's like we got a clip season. We still have Jupiter and Pisces until the end of July. And then this Mercury retrograde that I feel like is going to feel a lot longer than it actually really is because of the shadows as well as that Mercury Neptune square. Yeah. So, um, before we jump into it, do you have any announcements? Because I don't. I mean, it's the same with me. So my readings still aren't open. I mean, my books are open uh this month like you know the rest of this month and next month june uh thinking about taking a little hiatus in july to recoup because i need it (laughs) uh let me think let me think otherwise i don't really have any major announcements and i don't think i will for a while just until like I can get um put out other fires in my life so to speak so let's jump into Gemini the archetype what where do you want to start oh I okay so Gemini is a side I used to struggle with understanding a lot just because of how people explain it. It's just like, okay, yeah, Gemini can be, there's the whole like two-faced whatever, but it's like, okay, yeah, Gemini's the twins, but it's not the only double-bodied sign. That's like literally all the mutables. And I think sometimes people uh, conflate the possibilities that you could get with Gemini as a concept with those you can get from the other jovial signs, which are like, you know, Sag and Pisces. Um, but I think what people need to understand is that the differences come down to uh, the jovial archetype versus the mercurial one, whereas like Jupiter wants to create a cohesive picture. Mercury kind of wants to uh, break things into smaller pieces. And that's more evident with Virgo I think but it's just as true for Gemini yeah I agree and I think it'll be interesting to just dive into that further when we talk about the first second right which is of Gemini which is ruled by that Jupiter and Mercury um for me I I I I I, look like I have I have a very like fixed chart like my chart's just super super heavy fix especially with my Taurus and Leo placements and I feel like if I were to pick any one of the signs I feel like it's just so different from me it would be Gemini like and yet I tracked so many Gemini placements in my life like romantically platonically even professionally like I have so many people in my life who are like Gemini risings Gemini Venus Gemini like this and that and it's like it was really interesting. I, I loved actually, even though I don't have any placements in this sign, except I also have Chiron in Gemini is like the one. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, that's, there's also that caveat of just, but anyway, I mean, going back to the archetype, like I associate, I associate Gemini with just, it's just so different than Taurus, especially. We just did that decade episode where it's just like the fixedness and the slowness of Taurus. Suddenly you're just like in the whirlwind of Gemini I just think a lot of just like motion and movement and choice and balancing dualities and how do you balance things while in motion like I just and um 
And yeah, it's like, I, I do get that a little bit with some of the other mutables, but not as much as I do with Gemini. <laughs> so I'm actually remembering a reading I had with Amaya Rourke about my star parons. Uh, everybody should go get one if they can. Anyway, um, and I love how she described uh, the air sequence following the earth signs. Air signs are kind of like where evolution happens, but more so like in the Gemini transition from Taurus than anywhere else. Uh, I remember her telling me that, um, you know, what's the stability of Taurus is achieved? Like Gemini is kind of like seeing what can emerge, like, okay, what weird shit can I put together? And like, what comes out of that? It's just like conjuring up all these uh, possibilities, right? And so the way I like to think about the decades of Gemini, and I think some of this is derived from the uh, imagery you get with the lover's card in tarot, which is associated with Gemini, if you use Golden Dawn, is there's this like, I call it like literally the three stages of the curse of knowing. And I think like... Um, T. Susan Chang would agree, especially in her depictions, and I feel like that really solidified it for me. It's like the curse of knowing. It's like, okay, you get a little taste of what you could know, and then it's like, oh shit, what have I done? And then it's like, ah, like let the weight of that, you know, wash over you, mm. so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, you, you'd mentioned earlier, there's like the stereotype you hear a lot of like Gemini is being two-faced. And I feel like it's, <laughs> I feel like it's inaccurate at, or at best. Um, but it, it is interesting. That, yeah, I mean, Gemini is the twins. Um, the constellations based off of is is Castor and Pollux. And um, I find it interesting that in the, in the myth of Castor and Pollux, at least the version I know of, there are two twins. Um, one is the son of Zeus, the other one's the son of a mortal. So one's a demigod, one's a mortal. Nonetheless, they both excel very much in athleticism as well as in war. And um, I always forget which one is the one who dies. One of them, the mortal one, I remember his name, dies. And so the immortal one um, sacrifices part of his mortality to, like, bring his brother back, which is, like, how the constellation is formed. Because um, now they live immortally in the stars. And so to me, it's just, like, yeah, it's, like, there, there's a duality. Like, there's, like, the literal duality and, like, the twins. But, like, there is so much about sacrifice in these in this Deccan series as well, which is, like, really interesting to me. It's not just, yeah, it's not just about being two-faced and self-serving. There, there really is a lot to be sacrificed. Yeah. Um, I think also people play downplay the um, level of intellect that's associated with Gemini, especially in, like a lot of these uh i guess pop astro circles it's just kind of like oh gemini's are chaotic it's like no a lot of them are like well <clears throat> versed in a lot of subjects um even if superficially and they what the like the blessing of gemini is like knowing what to say and when to say it and to whom and i think that's why mercury does so well in gemini uh, and then we could talk about the fact that, you know, Jupiter is exiled here. And so mm -hmm. it's hard to have a cohesive vision if you want to have your hand in every pot, right? You can't really maintain that for very long. 
which yeah. is what Jupiter struggles with. Yep. I, I, the, I, I really do feel like the second series, like I, I absolutely agree. It is like the curse of knowing it is also just mm-hmm. like the, I feel like there's this flux between the decans of like also having to like make a choice, which the lover's card, you know, can go, is in the original, not in the writer weight deck, but in the original artwork, right? It's a man sharing choose between two women. And, mm-hmm. um, yeah. Um, and yeah, and that making a choice in this particular case is it's not an easy thing. Sometimes we get to make easy choices, right? Like chocolate ice cream or like vanilla ice cream, but no, like I feel like the choices that pop up in Gemini Deccans are difficult tasks and it comes from the curse of knowing all of the options <laughs> and the difficulty of like really trying to narrow it down. Uh-huh. But yeah. is there anything else you oh. wanted to share on the archetype or did you want to jump to oh, the, the archetype? No, I think like we should um just jump into it. Alright, so Gemini Deccan 1. This one, Austin Cobbett calls the apple. And this I, this actually is like, I, it's a reference to, and T. Susan um, Chang also says this to the, the Garden of Eden story, right? It's like the, um, at least in the like Judeo-Christian tradition, it's like the original like Curse of Knowing story of like mm-hmm. the first humans <laughs> Um, eating the, the fruit from the tree of knowledge and then and then yeah getting cast out of this paradise <laughs> um yeah um, want- I think it's telling because Austin also calls it the apple like uh what comes from it that's great is that you know how to do a lot of things which is great but then like again it's hard to put them together because it's like that Mercury-Jupiter uh, combination showing up uh, if you use both systems of the Deccans like we do in this podcast. So in the um, triplicity method or the rulership method, uh, Mercury would be ruler of this Deccan, while in the um, Chaldean scheme, uh, Jupiter would be the ruler of this Deccan. Uh, so you see elements of like, how do I put this? A lot of people with placements here tend to be like, jacks of all trades and master of none or like jacks of all trades and masters of some and a lot of the people with placements here kind of have renaissance person energy like they just want to do everything know everything um which is mm, it can be good sometimes because you can learn things really fast but then like your ability to learn things really fast doesn't always help you because you can um, run out of ways to apply what seems like infinite knowledge. Mm. So this is why it's kind of like a curse. Mm -hmm. I have really good examples (laughs) for this. I will jump into the examples later, but um, yeah, it it is the, the curse of knowing oftentimes is just like knowing that there are just knowing all the options, knowing that there's like a vast infinite world, but also knowing that time and and energy are so finite. And it, it really is. It's just like the, the fact that this is that again, like you said, it's Jupiter Mercury ruled, right? It really is this like conundrum. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Jupiter is in detriment here, but in this Deccan, like it overlaps and it's bound. So there is like a little bit of dignity here, mm-hmm. but nonetheless, it's still in detriment here. <laughs> Mercury is in domicile. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, <laughs> the examples I found for this one are pretty good. Um, I do think it's interesting. So the, the card that's associated with this is the eight of swords and, um, and yeah, I, <laughs> when I think of the eight of swords, I often think about like being your own worst enemy <laughs> because, mm-hmm. um, yeah, in, in, in the card, the person in the deck is bound. It looks like a really dire situation, but you know, when you kind of really look closely, um, this person actually really could remove, um, their blindfold mm-hmm. and get out of their binds like really fucking easily. So Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah um i really like how in 36 secrets um what happens is that uh she does compare the uh majors that are associated with this minor so it would be the lovers and the wheel of fortune and i think in reading 36 secrets um and you'll pr- everyone will probably notice this as they read it but also as we talk about the decans on this podcast is that I'm starting to see the Wheel of Fortune, but also Jupiter as a concept is, yes, it can be benefic, but like, there's this faded element. It's like the jovial archetype associated with the Wheel of Fortune has to do with, um, like, okay, the Wheel of Fortune, right? Like, you're jumping on this wheel that's always turning. And with the eight of swords there's almost this will you or won't you the wheel is turning it always turns and you have to get on or you're already on it and you have to decide when to get off right and it's just kind of like okay um the wheel is spinning what do i do or like so i think i like it because like when you're exiting the um third decan of taurus which is the uh seven of swords which is the previous Deccan slash card, I guess, if you're looking at it zodiacally. It's like, okay, <clears throat> I either had to cut my losses and move on, or like I established a, you know, strong enough insurance policy. But that opens you up to so many other possibilities. So it's like, okay, maybe something got stuck and you're waiting for it to progress. And then some situation or some insight hits you like <clears throat> A lightning bolt and you have to decide how to act and whether you know it's useful now and something changes to where like you see infinite possibilities but like you don't know what your next moves are and so I think that's pretty um telling I can read some of the other descriptions if you want of yeah please okay so other opinions are um, Ibn Ezra calls this Deccan a beautiful woman standing in the air and she can sew. The Picatrix also describes a beautiful woman who's a mistress of sewing and with her ascends two calves and two horses. And in this face is the art of the scribe, of reckoning, of number, of giving and receiving, and of the sciences. Uh, something that comes up with a lot of um, Deccans that do have mercurial influence is that <clears throat> there's skill in sciences and commerce. Uh, this showed up in the, uh, I think it was the middle decan of Aquarius, which was a double Mercury decan. Like, it's called the Lord of Science um, in the Thoth deck. 
And that's a Deccan that's all about experimenting, but in the context of bridging a gap or trying to get between a rock and a hard place. This one is just um, kind of you opening up your horizons and learning how to, um, I guess, receive new information <clears throat> um, and using that to experiment. Uh, Agrippa calls this a man who in whose hand is a rod, and he is, as it were, serving another. It granteth wisdom, the knowledge of numbers and arts in which there are no profits. So again, master of all trades, uh, jack of all trades, master of none. It's like, okay, I know how to do all these things, but um, they're kind of useless or ill-applied. And I know a couple of people in my personal life who have Mars in Gemini or stelliums in this particular part of Gemini. Mm. And that's their whole life. They learn things really quickly. They know how to do them really quickly. And they just can't seem to bridge the gap and um, create either like a cohesive narrative out of it or to find appropriate contexts in which to apply those skills. Uh, let me see, what is the Yavanajataka saying? Oh. Okay, so the first decanet in the third sign carries a bow, and in his hand is bright arrows. He is adorned with a garland of many colors, and his necklace is pendant. The instrument of his craft is prepared. He knows how to use swords and missiles, and he wears a diadem and armor. The second decanet in Gemini is a black woman whose girdle is beautiful and whose garments are brightly colored. She delights in the arts in singing. And in, oh, sorry, I'm, I'm skipping to the second decan. My bad. <laughs> <clears throat> anyway, so you'll get the element of, I guess, somebody who has a lot of skills and talents and resources at their disposal when you're reading um, the different, uh, you're reading about the different, like, descriptions of each Deccan. Sorry, of this Deccan. My brain is not working. Anyway, um, we can get into examples because I actually had quite a few that were pretty interesting, but I'm yeah, sure. I had good ones too. And I'm wondering if we got some of the same ones. My, my very first one is someone who is a triple Gemini who has, um, her sun, moon and AC or ascendant what? in Ooh. this Deccan. And that is queen Victoria. <laughs> Oh my god, how could I forget about that woman? <laughs> yeah, and that one's like, I mean, there's just very obvious ways that this Deccan plays out. Like, she was actually known for being, like, in some ways, like, a renaissance woman. She was, like, she had a bazillion hobbies. She was a linguist. She knew a bunch of languages, which I guess comes with the territory also, of being, like, a European monarch. Um, but a lot of that came from just um, her, you know, her childhood actually started out really, really rough because her mother and her mother's lover, I believe, who was also like some had some kind of position in the court. Um, they mm -hmm. like literally sheltered her for the first like 12 or so years of her life. They would not let her leave and they like did everything they could to like kind of like they were hoping to kind of just break her like mentally and emotionally. And so that she wouldn't be fit to like be a ruling monarch and then <laughs> then went on oh to become God. like the longest reigning monarch of, of, a, you know, of that time um i think the other thing that's kind of interesting and that plays out in this second for her is just the other thing that queen victoria is known for is just like ruling the the world's largest empire to this day mm -hmm. i think possibly i mean you could argue that but um you know the saying the sun never sets on the british empire came out of this time period mm -hmm. um 
for better or worse, right? Colonialism is really fucked up too, but it is really interesting this expansion that came of this empire that she was ruling that came out of this. And that, like, it just makes me think a lot of this decade in the sense of just like the, the, the constant want, <laughs> wanting of just like expanding and like growing and just like the options. Um, and I see that kind of playing out just even the way she ruled an empire. <clears throat> So. No, wow. No, that makes sense. Uh one of my examples is actually Boris Johnson. Hmm. He's actually he actually has a Gemini stellium in his ninth full sign house. But anyway. Wow. Um he has Mars in this decan uh ruling his seventh house. And something you'll notice really quickly is that he's had a lot of relationships from which have uh produced a lot of children. But anyway, uh, something that's interesting about his bio is that he was actually in um, a relationship with um, different women who influenced his politics. Hmm. Um, and so he used he actually used to be a little more, I guess, liberal and less conservative when he was in his earlier marriages. And then as he ascended in his career, and um, I guess changed wives. So did his political interests. <laughs> wow. Isn't that really interesting? That is really interesting. Yeah. So it's really, uh, it's really something. And it's telling that, you know, he is divorced now <laughs> from that person. Oh, uh, boy. And I think his um, other spouses are also involved in politics which can be a very ninth house thing mm-hmm. so yeah <laughs> yeah it's a good one um huh yeah i the other example i had was this is a good one for us astrologers so the astrologer reggio Montanus. <laughs> has his mercury oh, wow. here and um you know for those of us who study astrology um we're probably most familiar with that name because of the house system there is a house system called regio montanus uh, many people myself included actually used it for mm-hmm. um horary charts but regio montanus i was reading was you know he was an astrologer during the time of the renaissance and sure enough just like a lot of other scholars during his time um <laughs> he was an astrologer and astronomer he was a mathematician he was a translator an instrument maker, which at the time, look, it wasn't usual, but he was also a Catholic bishop. <laughs> that one maybe a little bit, like, unusual. And so um, his Mercury in Gemini actually is in his eighth house, um, and it rules his 11th house, um, where his midheaven is. So, yep, that was one another example I had. Um, so I have another Mercury uh, example. I have... Um... Prince, the uh, singer, and he has his Mercury in this Deccan in his eighth whole sign house. And I thought it was interesting how um, he took on a lot of uh, pseudonyms during his artistic career because <laughs> yeah. there were lots of battles over um, the control over his musical output. Mm. Um, and I thought it was interesting how he, like, I guess um, he's actually gotten out of a lot of, uh, I guess, weird copyright things. Um, 
like he's done covers of people's music and like some people were like oh we have to like remove this thing from the internet or we have to remove this from something and he's managed to get around them uh so i thought that was pretty uh interesting it's like okay i can like negotiate my way out of lawsuits while also <laughs> trying to like evade sharing ownership over my uh creative work yeah that I, I prince is just kind of a classic example of this like the gemini archetype of just like the shape-shifting um like him literally just changing his name it's one mm -hmm. of the things he's obviously for his great music but he's also really well known for just how many names and pseudonyms he had went by <laughs> my last example this one's a this one's actually jupiter and um jupiter in gemini in this decade is uh um impressionist artist named edgar degas mm -hmm. and i thought he was like a very interesting example because um he he had originally studied um to be a history painter but really changed course like in his early 30s and at the time like um just as a little context like the expectation for like these european artists especially these french artists like him was like yeah you like kind of go to an academy you like study the classical arts you present like your final work actually it's not really not that much different than like the way we would do like grad school <laughs> these days and then and then you would like go on to just like continue to just like paint the same old same old and um so what impressionist artists like him and Monet and Manet and like all these folks did was like it was considered really really revolutionary and controversial at the time to kind of like create this kind of a different style in painting and to also like show it showcase the art like outside of the academy was like a big fucking deal and so um so yeah I I think it's like really interesting that he's got Jupiter here it's Jupiter in detriment it's in his fifth house and it rules his like midheaven in the 11th house as well as his it also rules his second house and so he he eventually did get a lot of success actually like going after mm -hmm. like kind of taking a completely different route um but i could only imagine like how difficult of a choice it was for him to make that because he could have made it probably just fine it's just like a regular like classic artist um mm -hmm. i feel like to this um yeah, I think he was chaotic in some ways, but I do think at the same time, though, that he is a good example of how Gemini is, like, so much more than that. Because mm -hmm. one of the things he was, like, known for was just being almost overly obsessive with his art. Like, he was hyper-focused. He actually never, ever got married or, like, wanted to ever have, like, a romantic partner or children because he didn't want any kind of distractions <laughs> from his mm -hmm. work. So, yeah, that's my last example. Yeah, um, I don't have any other examples I want to share for this particular Deccan, and I think we can move to the next one. All right, so we're on to the second Deccan of Gemini. This one is a Mars and Venus ruled Deccan, so um, it's, yeah, and um, Austin Coppock calls this one the Hermaphrodite. The tarot card associated with this Deccan is the Nine of Swords, which is another <laughs> card that's like not so fun imagery. Um, I I didn't draw this card, but this was like literally me last night. I actually like did not sleep well. I had a bunch of really mm -hmm. crazy dreams. Same. <laughs> um, but yeah, this this 
card, you know, like when you look at kind of the Gemini and Deccans and the story that they're trying to tell, right? We we're just talking about Gemini one and just like the curse of knowing, right? It all kind of come. I feel like in a ways that culminates to this card, this moment of just like, mm-hmm. do I have to make a choice or is there a way to just reconcile like all of this? Um, and so there is a lot of like this, like, oh, why not both? kind of energy like maybe I don't have to make like one choice like maybe I just have to accept that there's just like all of this so um. yeah uh, I really love the 36 secrets depiction of this because T. Susan Chang describes this as like the aftermath of the knowing it's like there's this regret and mental anguish um she talks about how this can also be like Um, associated with the ways you can be cruel to others but also yourself because in the Thoth system this is called the Lord of Cruelty Mm. and sometimes in trying to hold two parts together you kind of have to um, I don't know there's like lots of imagery around moral dilemmas and I think Austin kind of picks up on that imagery as well like you have all these interests and you um, have all this range, but like um, you might be put in situations where you have to make like moral choices or moral dilemmas, or you're involved in something where um, maybe you have to be critical and maybe some people like benefit from critiquing, but there's also this huge like performative energy in this Deccan as well. And I think it's pretty telling that a lot of uh, performers seem to have like placements in Gemini. Because like when I was looking for examples, I was like, "Holy shit!" There's so many like performers or um, certain heads of state, especially have oh, interesting these, uh, placements. So I thought that was <clears throat> um, interesting. I'm glad you yeah. found good, like, like the examples of, like, performers, because <laughs> I felt like the examples I found were kind of took, like, a little more of the dark side <laughs> of um, of this Deccan. Um, yeah, I think on the mental anguish that is associated with this card as well, as well, the tarot card as well as, like, this Deccan, um, and and then even just what you, you were saying, it's, like, called the Lord of Cruelty, and just, like, that, mm-hmm. the, the cruelness we can have with ourselves, I think some of that can come from, like, right, when we're feeling, like, really anxious or um, really, really worried about something or just feeling some kind of anguish and rest at something, dealing with self-doubt <clears throat> and insecurities, like, there's, like... Yeah, there's this weird kind of like paradox that I think the best that sometimes you just kind of have to accept where it's like, yeah, the thing you're anxious about probably isn't real, but there, but anxiety is real, right? It is making you feel kind of like shitty or um, it's keeping you up at night and stuff. And that's real. And so you also want to be like compassionate and kind to yourself Mm -hmm. about that. Yeah, um, I have like a couple of interesting examples for this, but I do want to describe, let me just go back to the Yavana Jataka description I was about to read. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, so the second decanate in Gemini is a black woman whose girdle is beautiful, whose garments are brightly colored. She delights in the arts, in singing, and in storytelling. Holding a lyre, she's pleased and delighted. Her brows are loves- lovely, and she is graceful. Um... Ibn Ezra says, this is a black man with his head bound in lead and a weapon in his hand and an iron helmet of his head and on the helmet there is a silk crown and in his hand is a bow and arrow. 
He likes ridicule and mockery, and he walks around in a garden that has trees and flowers, and in his hand <clears throat> scales stones. He strikes them with his hand and plays music and picks flowers from the garden. So this is like somebody who... It's almost like someone who's out of place. It's like, okay, I'm this warlike person in this like idyllic scenery in that particular one. Um, let's see. The Picatrix says, a man whose face is like an eagle and his head is covered with a linen cloth. He's garbed and protected in a leaden cuirass? I don't know how to read that. Um, and on his head is an iron helmet upon which is a silken wreath. And he is holding in his hand a bow and arrows. And this is a face of burden and also evils and of subtlety. Uh, and in Agrippa, it says, a man in whose hand is a pipe and another being bowed down, digging the earth. And they signify infamous and dishonest agility and that of jesters and jugglers. It also signifies um, labors and painful searching. So I get... So this is like a wide range of like significations, but it's almost like there's this element of being um, decorated or decorative. And something that I noticed about like Mars, Venus, Deccans, I need to read more of um, the newly uh, released uh, post-colonial astrology, which just showed up at my door yesterday. Oh my god, thanks for reminding me to order that. <laughs> but uh, I know Ace talks, they talk about um, how while Mars signifies the act of war, Venus can talk about why we go to war and like what's valuable and what we want to create and you know, what's the morale. And I feel like with Mars and Venus combining in certain decans, I think there are only two if I remember correctly. Um there's just this focus on um, trying to accomplish like great things, but it's like, okay, what's the cost of accomplishing these great things? Or it's like, um, I don't know, like something about the Marshall and v Venusian energy combining kind of brings out these sorts of like dilemmas. Because I, I don't know if you remember us talking about how like, um, Aries 3, which is a Venus ruled Deccan and a Mars sign, is often depicted as someone who wants to do good but can't. It's like, okay, I have a good cause I want to fight for, but like I can't do the fighting. I have to use symbolic gestures. I think this is like showing up in a different way, but instead of being about literally like having the morale to do something, it's just about like exploring certain ideas entertaining certain ideas um entertaining certain situations just because of the airy and mercurial nature of where these energies are combining i don't know if you get that impression from this yeah and, no i agree i mean the other the other mars venus decan is capricorn too which i'm we'll mm -hmm. talking about in the capricorn episode but i I, the, I always when i think about that decan and the card associated i always think of like labor of love right just like mm -hmm. in order to keep toiling toward the thing that you want it really I think what kind of provides that cohesion or brings it all together is like, yeah, I guess that love or whatever it is that you ultimately like really care for or striving for. Um, yeah, with this second for the for the um, Venus and Mars, it was really interesting um, hearing you read those descriptions because the first couple I was like, okay, like that first one was a very was very Venus, that first one was very Mars. As it was going on, I was like, mm -hmm. oh, huh, this is like, it's very kind of there's a there's a range, it's very very different. Um, 
I have really good examples, um, actually, for this um, one that kind of, where you can kind of really see how the Mars Venus play out. Yeah, mm-hmm. I don't know if you're ready for examples yet, but I have a good example. Uh, so my first example is actually Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh. He has his Mars in the eleventh house in a day chart <laughs> in this particular decan. And um, <clears throat> with Mars ruling his fourth whole sign house and his ninth house and being his out-of-sight malefic, I think um, a lot of that shows up in his life as his like commitment to the British monarchy. Because it's like, he's kind of this person who had a difficult, even though he's descended from royalty, he had a difficult um, childhood and upbringing. And basically had to uproot himself from his uh culture and home to like make it so to speak hold on let me pull up his chart right now just so i can um because i know a lot of people talk about him um in terms of his uh commitment and service to the queen oh no wait his son is here never mind that's his ascendant ruler i switched his mars and his uh son because they're conjunct Mm. Um, so I'm guessing he was born just before <clears throat> whatever Mars son Kazemi is going to take place but anyway it rules his ascendant which is actually more apt this is somebody who you know is warlike he was a uh, I guess he was like you know a man's man expected to take on this more um, symbolic role and like just having Mars conjoin the sun because his Mars is actually in the last decan of uh, Gemini. And we could talk about that later. But um, it's like, this is someone who had to, like, I guess, I guess he fell out of place. It's like, okay, I have this place in high society. I feel like I'm more useful doing these things. Like, you know, either fighting for my country, because he was in the military for a while and that gave him a sense of purpose but like he always seemed to be someone who was I guess out of place and kind of struggled with how to fit in like yeah he was you know well awarded for like the choices he made in doing that um also like just thinking about the cruelty piece um he was kind of known for being very abrasive (laughs) which is not surprising um not necessarily in like a malicious way but in kind of like a I don't understand why people are so sensitive kind of way um and it's interesting how people with placements in both the middle decade of Gemini but also the last decade of Gemini kind of have this um tendency towards like I guess cruelty but also like uh trash talk so to speak because that does come up I would say, like, more so in the last decade than in this one. But, yeah, there's an element of, like, being able to perform and perform well and being well-received, but, like, struggling with that because of, um, you know, maybe some of his beliefs, but also, like, you know, reckoning with certain elements of his past and where he came from. And, like, his son is in a partile square with Saturn, who's, like, Mm. ruling his partner which is the queen. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. <clears throat> there's a lot of, um, I guess, tension there because a lot of his like 
ability to have wealth and like move through the world is dictated by that relationship and you know it forces him into this like I have this moral dilemma where I feel like I need to be this kind of person but because of the constraints of the relationship I'm in I can't really be that so that really I, shows up a lot in his life I was just thinking that too because you we were talking about like he is like especially now I mean he just passed right and it's like one of the yeah. things he's most well known for I mean maybe British people would disagree I guess like I, mean, I, I I've never lived in the UK I don't follow yeah, the royal yeah, family as well but at the same time like from my perspective anyway it's like the thing he's most known for is, is being married to Queen Elizabeth II mm-hmm. right and his like long like partnership with her um I have so many like or the examples I have for this decade as well as the next one um are folks whose romantic partners are very much intertwined with just their professional Mm -hmm. life their public life um so um but yeah I think I think he's another example of that it's a good one um yeah um, the other example, or the one example I have for this decade, I think is good, and it's kind of similar, is, um, Queen Isabella of Castile, who, wow. you know, for, for us Americans, right, we think a lot about, um, when, when we think about, um, Queen Isabella, we think also of King Ferdinand, and we know, you know, mm-hmm. the thing we know about is that they funded Christopher Columbus's, um, trip to find the Indies and he ended up discovering, discovering, ended up finding the Americas. I won't go into Columbus because fuck that guy. But mm-hmm. anyway, um, but what people like don't really know or tend to not know unless you really kind of study the history is like Isabella and Ferdinand um, in some ways are considered the first like Spanish monarchs because even while like they were still alive, there was actually like these were separate kingdoms like Isabella, um, was the heir apparent of Castile and then Ferdinand, who actually I'll talk more about in Gemini Deccan 3, because he has placements there, was um, the ruler of Aragon. Or Aragon. And mm-hmm. their marriage actually was, um, it, it is what and eventually kind of fuel or like or fused what is now modern day Spain. Um, but mm-hmm. it's, it wasn't quite like, yeah, like, I think in retrospect, people will now say like, oh, these are the first king and queen of Spain. We call it Spain now, but you really have to kind of think of the context of the time. Like, no, actually her official title was, she was like queen of Castile. He was king of Aragon. Um, so to me, that's just like, just like the duality of like Gemini is just like so literal in this, um, with queen Isabella's chart. So she has Mars in this decade in her ninth house and it rules her seventh house where her Aries Venus is. And so, um, one, I just described like the fact I'm mean, she, she gaming power through like, like her marriage. But I think another thing where I really see this Mars and Gemini play out is, um, yeah, she is no, they are both known for unifying Spain, but one of the really tragic things that, um, they did to quote unquote unify Spain was to expel Muslims and Jews out of Spain. Mm. It's also known as the um, Reconquista. It was a really, really tragic time of the, like the history of Spain and yeah. Europe. Yeah. Like I, especially because like, and something that else that I noticed is that like people who have um, placements in this middle decan, especially are very concerned with optics. It's like, yeah, there are moral dilemmas or like there are like quandaries or like this need to be intertwined with something and embrace a duality. Because I know that like I remember reading a little bit about the history of the um, 
I guess the I guess the development of the Spanish monarchy at some point. And I know that like they like when they did merge the two kingdoms, they had to like reconcile, you know, who got what titles, like what political alliances they would form because like they wanted to basically take back Spain for the Catholics or so to speak or whatever. Um which was sad because of all the um, intellectual development that came out of the Islamic rule of the uh, Iberian Peninsula. So, um, yeah. Um, I have another example in this decade, and it's actually Oprah. So she has her um, Jupiter in her seventh house in Gemini in this decade. And she is, I don't know, with Oprah, she has had a lot of relationships, but a lot of them, like, um, just didn't work out. Um, Like, I'm reading her bio right now, and, like, she... She's either had relationships with people who are like, okay, I can't deal with the stress of being in a relationship. Like, there was somebody she was with, um, and they were in an interracial relationship in the 70s, but, like, the guy was like, I can't do this. And then she um, had other relationships where um, she was like, okay, I want relationships where the person, like, doesn't want me, but, like, if they want me too much, like, I can't deal with this and like there was a really stressful period um in the 80s where um she was having an affair with somebody who wasn't going to leave his wife um and then like it's interesting how like she's had like all these like struggles with relationships that have been you know challenging for her health um but it's interesting how her approach to relationship is like being in a relationship without like ever fully getting there because now she has like a boyfriend she's been with forever and got engaged to forever but they never got married like ever and they're still together so i think it's interesting that it's like okay i want to be in relationship but like i never want to fully consummate a relationship if that makes sense yeah yeah um and then also her role is like an entertainer type person, you know, just and how she's amassed her wealth that way is really telling. That's a good, that's a good example. I mean, now you're talking, I'm all like, oh yeah, I guess I never, I, I didn't never really learn very much about like her romantic life. Cause it's not really what she's like known for, but I was like, oh, huh. Yeah. yeah. And if people comment on it, they're like, oh, she, why isn't she married? why is it she married why is it she married like as if that's the most um important thing ever (laughs) yeah god um my last example and i hesitate to give this one is emmanuel kant um and i hesitate because like i have not read any of kant's philosophies or theories really Mm -hmm. like no not in depth i i I barely grazed the surface of this, but I thought as I was reading about him though, and what I already kind of knew about him, I thought it was a good example. He has his Venus here. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I think, uh, you know, on just this decade being about just like 
the acceptance of paradoxes and dualities and things like I know one of his theories was around just like the true meaning of a thing like let's say Mm -hmm. like let's look at an apple (laughs) just throw back to Gemini one let's look at an apple right like he kind of says like we will never ever really fully know like what an apple really really is because we're too tainted by our own like Mm -hmm. experiences um with that apple but at the same time those experiences are also very much real like that is the apple so yeah I can't say too much on that I probably maybe have butchered it but there you go (laughs) I thought that one was a really interesting example um I have like a couple of examples so quick note like because like this is a decade of critics trickery and whatnot i think it's interesting that controversial figures like um jordan peterson and boris johnson uh both have their mercury in this decade oh my god the ninth house and um i remember reading his bio and apparently he published this whole book on parenting which got really bad reviews um, but this guy has built his political career off of being controversial, as is Jordan Peterson. Um, he actually makes a living by criticizing, I guess, like a lot. Even though he's like a psychologist by training, a lot of what he makes his money on is like, I guess, criticizing the. Um, I don't know how to articulate it, but. He's always criticizing the ways in which, most notably, like, woke culture, especially where gender is concerned, affects, like, the ability for men to date and things like that. Um, I think it's really interesting that this shows up in his uh, life. And it's like, okay, this isn't surprising. This is someone who literally profits off of posting controversial things and um making it sort of entertaining for people oh my god despite also being a professor you know jordan peterson is such a good example i'm so glad you mentioned this one because like have you you so one of the books he's most famous or maybe it's perhaps the book that got him the most famous is called the 12 rules of life like i don't know if you've ever like have you ever Mm -hmm. read what those 12 rules are no i listen i know i know some people who are like not stands, but they're like, oh, he has something interesting to say. And I'm just like, mm, I don't know about that. I... Well, yeah, that's kind of the terrifying thing about him is like, I, I looked once because I remember listening to this podcast. I was obviously very critical of him. And like, yeah, I do not ascribe to Jordan Peterson in any way. But so I was curious. I was like, oh, what is this 12 of the rules? What are the 12 rules of life according to Jordan Peterson? And when you read them, just like as like when just listed, it just sounds like any other self-help book. You know, it's Mm. just like shit, like treat yourself like someone you are responsible for helping. Um, Befriend Mm. people who want the best for you. You know, it all sounds kind of just really innocent on the surface. And then, but no, I, apparently it's like, as you read the book and as he kind of goes and delivers these talks and like goes on Fox News and talks about this shit, it's like a Mm. lot more insidious than it really appears to be. (laughs) I am really annoyed because I I have my Mercury in this deck and it's in the fourth house though. Um. I that's where the cruelty and subtlety part comes in uh I definitely do see that with this uh mercury placement especially if it's actually in the um 
terms of Mars instead of Venus. Uh, these people can be very critical. Like, this is the part of Gemini that I would argue is the most critical. Like, everything is a moral dilemma, and then, like, they have all these subtle hidden messages that you're supposed to pick up on. And you're not sure... Like, you can read it two ways, almost. And I think, like, so many people like people like Jordan Peterson because they're not... How do I put this? They don't have the um, perspective to see what the hidden messages are in what he's saying. You know? Mm -hmm. But that's what, you know, again, profits him at the end of the day. <laughs> right? Yep. Uh, my next example is uh, Sigmund Freud. <laughs> oh. Who has his uh, moon in the eighth house uh, in this decade? And I really think it's interesting that he is somebody who started out as like a um, an actual neuroscientist, uh, but then like got into this um, psychoanalytic um, theory, <clears throat> and I feel like. A lot of his moon ruling the ninth from the eighth is like him f founding um what's it called uh the psychoanalysis school of psychology um and the themes of like the psyche and its structure i feel like that's um where that shows and uh yeah it's interesting because he has a lot of gemini placements Oh, I really, yeah, I really need to look at his chart because one of the theories he's most famous for, right, is the belief that ourselves are divided into the I, the ego, and the superego. Mm -hmm. So, like, yep. the literal splitting of ourselves, you know, it's mm -hmm. just like, it's just so Gemini. <laughs> wow. Yeah, this dude. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. We're going to have a field day when we get to. Uh, the last decan with this guy <laughs> all right are you ready to go into the third decan then oh the last decan of gemini uh i'll let you start on this one <laughs> <laughs> this one is ruled by the sun and saturn which are two planets that you know um there's a tense relationship that could be there um given that the sun domiciles in Leo and then Saturn domiciles in Aquarius. And those are two opposing signs. Um, mm -hmm. I'm personally feeling that right now with Saturn and Aquarius opposing all of my Leo, including my sun. But anyway, um, the Austin calls this Deccan the executioner's blade. And this one's represented by the 10 of swords, which just really rounds out the fun imagery of the tarot cards associated with the Gemini Deccans. Um, this is probably, I like that T. Susan Chang, I, I really like that in this chapter, she says that when she, this card comes up with um, clients, like she, or even before she draws, right, she'll pull out this card and she'll pull out death just to like show people like, okay, like I draw this card like eight times a year, I'm not dead, like, <laughs> in case this card comes up like don't freak the fuck out but it is a card right of a man who is like on his stomach like with like 10 swords 
sticking out mm -hmm. of his body. Like it's it's not <laughs> it's not a fun card. Um, yeah, yeah. So Ten of Swords, Sun Saturn, Gemini yeah. three. <laughs> And I like how she describes it as famous last words. This is another decade of people like trash talking, right? Um, more so than the previous decade. Um, she also describes this as like people who can lack empathy but are good with words. But also like collapsing under the weight of knowing. It's like, okay, I've come to like, I can't solve the moral dilemma of the nine of um sword slash the middle decan of gemini it's time to get rid of this uh i think it's also interesting how both she and austin uh talk about how uh in twin myths uh, um throughout many cultures uh there's always one that dies for whatever reason or their themes around needing to um sacrifice one twin because having twins could be like a evil omen or something um but I really like the imagery of like something needing to conclude or being in a position to provide like um, serious and lasting judgments on things. And it's just like, okay, <laughs> I can't do it all. Uh, I can't do everything. Uh this is something that Austin mentioned in his uh, workshop is that he knew someone who was really talented but loved to do hard drugs. This is actually something I've seen in a lot of the examples that I pulled up. A lot of these people can have issues with drug use, but they also have a talent that they're really good at. And then the people who are immortalized either um, give up the thing or they're consumed by it. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, you know, the, look, it's like, it's, it's inevitable. Like this Deccan and the tarot card associated with it do have death references. And I like that T. Susan Chang doesn't sugarcoat that, but I do also like that she expands on it. Like, I, I agree. Like this card can very much be about just like it's collapse, but it's not, the, it doesn't have to be the end of the world either. Maybe this is like a really just a signal to just reset and try again or keep going. And yeah. I, yeah, um, the, the, yeah, the, the twin myths, um, like even, even, yeah, I, I was already just describing the Castor and Pollock story earlier of, yeah, one twin dies, the other twin gives mm -hmm. up like part of his, um, mortality. This is where it happens. <laughs> yeah. Yep. This is, this is the deck in where it happens. Um, my Chiron is here and that's something I'm still to this day unpacking because I don't really study the asteroids and. Mm -hmm. and, oh god <laughs> um yeah I, I i i could tell though like why my chiron is here because it really is just like this um yeah this feeling of just like last words or like needing to take a stand um mm -hmm. or even like another thing that i feel like associates with this second is you know like the ten tens in the like in the um tarot tend to be just like an over accumulation of that thing and so if it's like an over accumulation of swords right which is like intellect i think it can be like this over intellectualizing of like decision making mm -hmm. or just just overkill in general right and even the card itself it's like really like you you don't have to kill someone with like it really is like a, like a card in a deck and around just like overkill and just like yeah but then that's what kind of like leads to the collapse um 
I, I mm-hmm. do have good examples for this one um, that I think will help just even just kind of help me parse through this, this decade because it is a tough one. Um, oh, the last thing I'll say too on the death thing, right, is that it's also not unique to this decan. Like all the mutable like third decans have mm-hmm. tend to have some kind of reference to death or dying or decay, which I think is interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me just uh, read the description. I have a couple of good examples for this one as well. Um, so I'm going to start with the Yavana Jataka again this time. The third decanate in Gemini wears red clothes and a red pendant necklace. He is pale red with limbs violent and fierce. Um, the tip of his staff is red with blood. He is the chief of a multitude of men. He bears a sword and missiles. Before we keep going, uh, okay, so something that shows up is that a lot of people don't realize that decans can show up in appearance, especially if it contains your um, ascendant or ascendant ruler. And someone being very red and like, violent and whatever like i just think of trump who has his son in this decan conjoined the north node ruling his ascendant in leo and um he's very much like this figure that is described uh, i also had a twitter mutual and friend uh comment on the last taurus decans um episode and when i was reading the descriptions of the yavana jataka because um she has a taurus moon in the third decan she's like wow like these things map on to my appearance so if you find that like i'm reading something and it's kind of how you look like don't be surprised like for example uh this also works for fortune houses too because like i have my lot of fortune in virgo and it's ruled by my second decan gemini um mercury and it's like hmm this kind of sounds like me (laughs) weirdly uh me if i was a happier person (laughs) you know (laughs) wait wait um i know this is an aside but what decan in virgo is your lot of fortune in again (sighs) it's in the first decan okay mine's is in the second okay that'll be a fun is in the second decan of virgo yeah so that will be a super fun episode. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so don't be surprised if like certain appearance things like happen to map on to how you look. Like that can be a thing. So <clears throat> I know more of the people who are into like astrology and appearance are like usually Vedic Twitter, usually talking about nakshatras. And um, there's a lot of stuff there too that's cool. But at the end of the day, there are multiple things that can influence how you look and sometimes it's not even like a I know people are like oh but what about like you know your ethnicity and like whatever but it's like if you looked at enough people even across ethnicities there are types of people who look the same it's not about like oh what color are your eyes or what color is this it's also about like the structure of how you look and how you carry yourself that's more important that I that I've found anyway if that makes sense no it makes total sense yeah uh, uh, but anyway uh other opinions uh okay ibn ezra says this is a man seeking arms who has a bow and a quiver and in his hand an arrow and clothing and golden ornaments and he desires to play music and laugh and mock in all sorts of ways again trash talk <laughs> um a man garbed with a cuirass, um, holding a bow and arrows and a quiver. And this is a face of boldness, honesty, and the division and 
alleviations of labor. Agrippa says this is a man seeking for arms and a fool holding in the right hand a bird and in his left a pipe. And they are significations of forgetfulness, wrath, boldness, jest, scurrilities, and unprofitable words. Um, yeah, this is a harsh Deccan. I, I also find it weird how um, warlike this Deccan is, but more so in like a defensive way. You know, like, uh, and that shows because there are quite a few, like, again, heads of state and weirdly influential people who have, like, Sun and Saturn in this Deccan. Yeah. Like, I don't know if you've noticed that as well. I did notice that. Um, and on the warlike thing, yeah, Mars is obviously going to be the planet most associated with war, but I really do think of Saturn when I think of defense. Like, mm -hmm. that Saturn-Mars square, especially, that we had to deal with last year, and then oh even early in this year, right? <laughs> it really freaking felt like being in a battle, like, in a, in a siege, where it's just, like, you're in, like, you know, the opposition's in trenches, and then defense mm -hmm. is just, like, has their moats and their walls up and it's just like a standstill and it's like defense um yeah i absolutely associate saturn with that which saturn's one of the planets that rules the second yeah um my first example is again sigmund freud who has his saturn in the eighth house here there's so much to unpack with that especially because that saturn is in a pretty tight square with jupiter and pisces um, and it's an anoretic Jupiter in Pisces. Uh, oh, Neptune is squaring too, but like widely. Um, and I think it's interesting how we're talking about Freud during like the last stint of his Neptune return, even though he's like not alive to see it. That, that's pretty funny to me. <laughs> that uh, is pretty funny. <laughs> weird, that's weird synchronicity. But um, I think it's really telling that Saturn rules his fourth full sign house. Um, is square the fifth house ruler? And um, he has all these theories about um, psychosexual development that are very um, kind of off-putting. Uh, and he thinks that like, um, like, so a lot of his like, I guess, framework, so to speak, are about like, um, what libido is. Um, and how it generates your attachment to people, but also, like, he was focused on, like, drives to, um, I guess, avoid death, basically, and survive, or, like, why you tend to self-destruct. And I think because Saturn is, like, the last triplicity lord of his midheaven in Leo, it's like, okay, what is your legacy, basically? Like, how enduring is your fame and... Um, authority and where that will show up and i think it's telling that like taboo subjects and like repression and things like that are things that he are no he's known for it doesn't help that um saturn is squaring his um fifth house ruler that feels very um weird to me and then like apparently he had this really strong attachment to his um mother or something like that which is something 
<laughs> yeah, that that Saturn, yeah, like you said, like legacy, right? Like it is interesting. Mm-hmm. It is interesting now that he is going through his Neptune return that he isn't around for anymore. But yeah, mm-hmm. I actually, you know, on that even, right? Like it's it's interesting because Fred actually, I mean, he really does have a huge legacy. Obviously, he is the father of psychoanalysis. I think a lot mm-hmm. of like psychologists today. Um, think that Freud's wrong on most things that he theorized about but I think they also all acknowledge that he really he was on the right track like he kind of laid like a a foundation um but yeah it's just a lot of it was just off and now but now a lot of people are kind of really like growing on it expanding it or like correcting it which is um yeah interesting to me like even like ironic though uh like so a lot of his like theories about um a lot of his theories about like you know trauma and like psychological development were kind of triggered by the loss of his father um and how like he was hostile towards his father but also like jealous over like you know his mother's interest in other people and so like he wanted to unpack that for himself and then Uh. it turned into this whole thing so it's just like some of this is your own projection but like it's influenced a lot of culture anyway like for better or worse Mm -hmm. Mm um yeah 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 that's a good example um one of my examples yeah this is gonna kind of go back to what i was saying in gemini 2 so um as Mm -hmm. i was saying in gemini 2 queen isabella of castile has her mars in gemini second her husband, King Ferdinand of Aragon, has his ascendant in Gemini 3. And mm. um, to this day, right, we really tend to talk about the two together, right? Like, it wasn't just, like, one or the other. It really was that they were co-ruling what eventually became mm-hmm. modern-day Spain. His um, his ascendant um, is ruled by an 11th house Mercury in Aries, where his Venus also is. Um, and that Venus rules his fifth house. And, you know, on the topic of just like this duck in and the trash talking, this is a really freaking awful example of it. But when Isabella died, which again goes back to just the dying of like twins or like pairs. So when Isabella died, mm-hmm. he, um, his daughter Joanna of Castile was supposed to, was, um, was the heir and she was supposed to be the, the, the next person to ascend to the throne and he was supposed to rule as a regent. He began, he assumed power by declaring his daughter was mentally unstable. And historians mm. now say in retrospect that there was no evidence of that really. Um, at the very least, there were no declarations of it prior to like, um, she was known to be like highly intelligent um, at a, from since a very young age, not to say that people can't have um, mental health issues if they're not highly intelligent. Anyway, there were no reports anyway of this, of mental instability up until this power grab started to happen. And unfortunately, he was very successful in it. He actually was able to assume power from her and locked her up. Um, mm. Yeah, it's really, it's really messed up. Mm. Yeah, no, I'm also reading his bio now, and it's interesting because when he um, married her, I guess, like, my understanding is that um, it was the kingdom of Castile that was, like, I guess the more, um, I guess the larger and more, um, I don't want to say prestigious, but more, like, expansive um, 
kingdom, but like when they married um, and her father died or her brother, sorry, her brother died. Uh, she, um, I guess like he got the title. So, um, and they like, um, we're separate entities, but under like the same crown. So it's like, he, he inherited a title through his wife, basically, which is interesting. And it's like, okay. Cause if you think about like the region where, um, Aragon was mostly um, concentrated versus Castile. Like, it kind of makes sense. It's like, okay, I'm like indirectly gaining power this way. But him, like, trying to like say that his um, daughter um, <laughs> or somebody is not like fit to rule after, like, I guess the good twin dies. Because most of what you hear about like Ferdinand and Isabella, it seems more like Isabella is like regarded yes. <laughs> more highly than him. Yes. And so she dies, and he gets to um, stay in power. Mm. Which is interesting, but not surprising. <laughs> yep. <laughs> uh, do you have any other examples? I have a, a I do. I do have a couple of good examples, and they both play on this Wait, theme of like partnership. Do you have Rita Kahlo as one of your examples? I do not, but oh, that's a good one. <laughs> uh, we can get into her later because she has her Venus there. Okay. Um, um, I okay. I could go into another example unless you have the one. Okay. No, yeah, you go. Eleanor Roosevelt has her Saturn in this <gasps> one. It's a stationing Saturn. It just had stationed retrograde like a few days wow. before she was born. Um, so I feel that I have two stationing planets. I have a stationing Saturn in my chart as well. Hers is in her seventh house. And yeah, I mean, Eleanor Roosevelt is now known more for more than just being a first lady, but there is the undeniability that she rose to power because she was a first lady. She, um, she did, she was born into a prominent family, just like her husband and cousin, um, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And, um, yeah, it is actually really interesting just kind of looking at, um, how this, um, Saturn, um, you know, in her seventh house, like played out in her life. Um, when I think of a stationing Saturn, I often think of just like twist and fate. And so, um, with her, right, with his relationship with Franklin, like, you know, it was kind of, you know, they're, they're both old money, like, they're an old money family. It was kind of one of those mm -hmm. relationships that, like, wasn't really exactly born out of love. And um, when she was in, when she was 33, she was in 10th house perfection year. She found out that Franklin had been having a relationship with um, her secretary. And uh -huh. so, yeah. And so that was... Um, at that moment on, she was really, she wanted a divorce. Um, her mother-in-law <laughs> talked her out of it. Um, and, but from there on out, they basically like didn't live like a married couple anymore, although they were living together. Um, but then to wow. top it off, three years later in her first house perfection year, uh, Franklin gets polio. And she wow. actually really stood by his side, like her, the doc, his doctor, um, had like publicly said like Eleanor Roosevelt's my hero like I've never seen a wife like really really stand by her husband 
um, through a really, really terrible disease that he almost died from. Like the doctor even credited mm-hmm. her for saving his life, not even himself. He was like, he could have died. And I think he didn't die because of her. Um, and it was like really freaking interesting because um, it was in, yeah, he none, she nonetheless was the one who was really pushing him to stay in politics and became president. His, her mother-in-law was like, no, I want, I want him to retire and just be a rich, like, guy who just, like, lives in the country and just relaxes now that he has, like, he's paralyzed. But um, I think at, at this moment, it was, like, again, the first time I see her, Eleanor finally got to really kind of break out on her own. She finally got to, like, kind of release herself from the grip of her mother-in-law. And, mm. um, and then, yeah, and I think, um, yeah, it was from that point on where she became kind of her own person outside of just... Franklin. She got really, really involved in the war effort during World War II. Um, anyway, yeah, I, I that I could go on, but yeah, that was that's Eleanor Roosevelt, Saturn <laughs> station, Saturn retrograde, and some of house. Wow, no, that's really impressive. Um, <clears throat> so Frida Kahlo. So like, I'm just realizing that Venus rules her uh, third house, um, and it's in the eleventh uh, conjunct Pluto in this decan, and it's also square Saturn in Pisces and how that whole like she wanted a different career trajectory for herself like yeah she was always into art but like she wanted to do other things um and getting into that really bad accident which like almost killed her as like we mentioned on episodes before um basically put her in a position where all she could do was art um and it kind of made her realize that Hmm, painting is for me and she was able to build like a um I guess build like a career through that like indirectly and make important alliances with people um so that's pretty uh interesting but I feel like the Plutonian and like Saturn influences there just like, okay, it took this extreme thing for me to be like, okay, I'm shoved into, um, you know, I'm shoved into this um, role and I have to do this. Um, I can't do anything else. Right. And she was also someone who was like, <sighs> so even though she went on to have like a lot of friends later in life, it didn't start out for her that way. Cause you know, she was like sickly. Um, she had a lot of disabilities as a result. Um, so she had to like, I guess, escape through like art and literature. Um, and it just like caused a lot of delays for her. Um, even though like she was pretty, um, talented otherwise um and very well read and very like interested in a lot of things but it took a lot of these tragedies in her life for her to like really commit to art um one example i have that's less tragic is lebron james so funnily enough like he was actually really good at football in high school and he was even recruited by um, some Division One programs to play for the um, NCAA football, um, like, you know, schools like Notre Dame and things like that. And he was really, really, really good at football, not just like a good um, basketball player. 
And so um, some people think he could have been a great football player. (laughs) Um, But I think like what happened was uh, he stopped playing football because he um, got injured in some like basketball game or something. So he just kind of stopped doing it. And instead he's like a pretty decorated basketball player. I mean, it worked out for him. That so, <laughs> really worked out for him. Wow. Yeah. My last example. So there was a modern artist named Christo. And uh, if it's not obvious, I was an art history major. And I remember mm-hmm. like first learning um, when I first took my very first art history class in high school. And I learned about Christo. Christo was known for wrapping buildings, monuments, and, like, environmental landmarks in usually some kind of, like, wrap or paper or, um, anyway, yeah, it's modern art, right? Um, but what was really fascinating to me as I was, like, preparing for this episode and, like, his chart pops up, right, Mm -hmm. when I'm looking on Astro Data Bank, he has his son here in this decade, is actually he, his wife was an artist named Jean-Claude, and they did these works together, and it's really fucked up because I never ever learned about her. Wait, but she was I always I've, doing. <laughs> I've heard of them, but like I think mostly through him. Yes, yeah. Every single like I, I really remember this. I remember like every single textbook I saw with his work. Um, it, it it he was just he's the only one credited. He's the only one credited, and it's like. It's so fucked up. Uh, again, it kind of goes back to just like the partners and this Deccan just associated with like the killing. In this case, it wasn't the literal killing of the partner, but the fact that like she, it's really fucked up that she was like really in the shadow um, yeah. of him all of these years. Um, here's the fucking trip is she also has her son in Gemini in this Deccan, but it's in her seventh no. house. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. So they both have like third Deccan son and Gemini. oh no that is too that's too literal i'm sorry like how are you yeah. gonna marry someone with like basically the same son as you and then like end up playing out the other part of the narrative that is so trippy yeah yeah wow. i couldn't fucking believe it <laughs> um do i have another example that i actually want to share i have one that's kind of sad like uh, Billie Holiday, who's in Aquarius mm. Rising, uh, she has her Saturn in the fifth house, um, and Saturn obviously rules the twelfth house for her. Um, she was very talented, and what sucked about her career was that um, so she started out performing with certain bands, but like, so she left one band that she was performing with, like because they didn't really have the conditions to support her to join, like a. Uh, another band or like to join something else where um she was performing with like white people instead of just black people so she could get more exposure and i mean she had the talent but like she was getting exposure and not like getting paid for it right and um yeah she just had this whole thing where she was cheated out of her earnings a lot and then you know while she was dealing with uh drug abuse on top of that i think there were certain government authorities like who were upset that she did the song um strange fruit and so she was often punished or criminalized for her um 
drug addiction or abuse and there was a time where she actually had to like not produce anything and i think she either had to go to rehab or like um jail or something for possession of substance so like that theme showed up like really profoundly in her life and i think it's just like telling of the saturn rulership of the 12th but also like how if you don't like kill the vice that is like stopping you from achieving things like it will consume you so to speak because she died pretty early of like cirrhosis so that one's pretty sad yeah that's pretty sad but it is gemini decan three it's not the cheeriest of the decans (laughs) no it's not and some of them are not very uh not very fun but like they can be very necessary and i'm thinking of how like just kind of the warlike nature of the deccan but like more so in a defensive way and i'm thinking about how like i if i'm if i'm remembering correctly the sibley chart um has uranus in the seventh house in um gemini and i'm just thinking about how that's influenced the u.s as a country um Let me actually look at this freaking chart. Hold on. Especially because, like, it's not a transit happening now, but it's happening in the next seven years or so. Oof. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, oh, Like, so... Oh, no, U.S. has its Mars there, which is... Okay, it has Uranus in the 8th house, has Mars there in the 7th. And I think, like, it's interesting how... I guess the U.S. has, like, marketed itself and, like, made itself, like, very adversarial in relationships with other countries, but um, also just, like, its defensive warlike um, position. It's like, okay, we have to dictate justice to people. We have to assign judgment and how, like, Mars rules like the 12th house of the chart which has to do with hidden enemies and how like they're trying to evaluate or discern like who the hidden enemies are amongst like other nations so it's just like it's really interesting Mm. yeah yeah the US chart's a good one to end on I'm actually really excited I wish I would revisit it when we talk in the next episode about the cancer oh we are going to (laughs) That cancer stellium. <laughs> yep. That yep. cancer stellium. Um, but yeah, that's all from us for the Gemini Deccans. Um, yep. Yeah, like, I don't have anything else to add. I'm still trying anything. to deal with the fact that I keep drawing the Ten of Swords. <laughs> so. Same! Yeah! <laughs> I just drew it yesterday. Oh, yeah. Well, we hope you all enjoy Gemini season. Um, yeah, it'll be interesting to report back once we do the Cancer episode on just how. Yeah, this and month. let us know how that last Gemini eclipse affects you all because I think it's in the second decan, just barely missing the third decan. So, if you guys have like comments or anything, we'd love to hear back. Yes. All right. Bye, Mo. Bye, everyone. Bye.